Hey, everybody. Welcome to Bevan, a femme over 40 and her friends podcast. I'm your host, Bevan. I've said my name three times. It's time to start the show. Um, if we've hung out in the last like six months or so, I've probably talked about ontology, the study of reality, which I learned about from my friend Leah Garza, who is my guest on the podcast today. We dig in about like what even is reality, like right, what what even is the study of reality and how all these things kind of come together. Um, it reminds me a lot actually of uh, the way she describes it in the episode reminds me of how my women's studies degree was put together. Um, now, mind you, I was a women's studies uh, major at UC Davis um, and they shifted to women and gender studies as I was graduating. So they shifted like what they even called my area of study. And I, I, this was on the side, by the way, of my poli sci degree. So like at that time, I was barely out of the box thinking enough to, I felt like a true rebel to have had this like secondary degree in women's studies anyway. But what was really fascinating and beautiful about my program is it was interdisciplinary. They like required as part of getting that degree, you to go out and study um, African-American studies classes, um, indigenous studies classes, like um, so many different uh types of people intersect in the identity of woman, right? I also learned a lot about masculinity studies too. Um, so it's just really interesting, right? Like how an area of study is really like something that's an amalgamation of so many other things. Um, and I think the way we think about our own reality is an important part of getting our power back. Uh, a lot of what I think patriarchal ontology does to us, where we're organized around a patriarch, is that everything we do has to have some sort of permission from others or from the patriarch, right? Like, and I think the real problem in all of that is just like how it gets rooted in our mind. Um, and so I hope that this conversation kind of helps you expand what you think of when you think of the word quote unquote normal, right? Um, and what you think of when you think of your own reality and how much control you have over it. Um, I think a lot of the work of colonialism is to keep us uh, controlled and fear is a really great way to control people. Afraid people are easy to control. And so the more you can kind of take your power back and like shift away from these ideas um, and just make up your own mind, right? Like, I don't need you to think the way I think. I want you to think the way you think. And I want you to think in a way that is separate from the colonizer um, and all of that. So I hope this is a valuable episode for you. It sure was for me and it will continue to be. I'm going to go back and take some more notes. Um, Leah is just such a gifted healer and thinker, and I'm just super grateful to get to be alive at the same time as her. Um, and before we get started with the episode, I just want to remind you the best way to support this podcast is through my Patreon page, Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash F-K-D-P. Uh, the link is in the show notes. And that is uh, FKDB stands for Fat Kid Dance Party, my aerobics class, which is actually how I initially met Leah. Um, and we were both teaching at the same uh, gym. It was a gym. Uh, and anyway, we don't anymore, but I was grateful to get to meet a lot of really cool healers um, and creators in the world through that experience. Um, and so Facky Dance Party is available through this Patreon membership, which supports the podcast and enables me to like do all these things where I just add value to the world. So Patreon membership starts at two bucks a month, which includes all of my Zoom aerobics classes. So uh, every Saturday I teach a class on Zoom. Once a month on Mondays, I teach a kind of lower, more, uh, a shorter, easier choreography sort of class. Um, Mondays, uh, once a month. 
And also there's an on-demand membership. So for 25 bucks a month, which is less than the cost of one soul cycle class, you get access to six aerobics videos that I produce refreshed weekly. So every week I create a new class and upload it. Um, it's super great. It's like the funnest thing for me to do is to create these classes and to get to be with all of you and move together. Um, and I hike into the woods, uh, film it so that you can have the outdoor experience with you. Or if I'm on tour and in person, I'll film an in-person class. So I actually, for the first time since March, 2020, I got to upload an in-person class, um, socially distanced outdoors, but still, um, to the membership. So that's exciting to get to bring all of you along. There's always a 10 minute, a 20 minute, two 55 minute classes, a chair aerobics class, and a canna-sized clutch, which, which is slower, more repetitive choreography to accompany an optional cannabis experience. All that plus bonus classes from other body positive instructors that I enjoy. And it's all available to you, patreon.com slash FKDP. It also includes bonus, uh, a little bonus podcast uh, there, like little short episodes, Reiki healings, meditations, um, answers to advice questions I get from my Patreon members. Um, and all of that is in there. Plus, this year, I'm doing spiritual self-care lessons. So I have chunked down to my 12 pillars of my self-care and my spirituality. Because for me, um, it's funny because Leah really challenges me. I'm like, what even is self-care in this episode, which I enjoy? Um, but for me, self-care is like an important part of my life. It's a cornerstone. And my spirituality has woven into that because I think spirituality is a practice. It's something we continue to return to through the rituals and the things that we incorporate. So I've talked about altar spaces, um, energy cleansing, some basic spiritual hygiene that I do every day, um, connecting with our ancestors um, and plant medicine, so many things, oracle cards and decks and tarot, um, so many things. So that's all there. And I just keep adding to it. So it's fun to create a Patreon because then you kind of create this treasure trove of value that um, continues to add. So I hope that you'll join me there, patreon.com slash FKDP. And now I'd like you to imagine that you're on a virtual porch with me and Leah. We're in some nice furniture. You're cozied up with your favorite childhood blanket and on with the show. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. <laughs> Welcome to the podcast, Leah Garza. <laughs> Thank you for having me. Yay. I'm so glad you're here. Um, I feel like everyone in my life has heard me talk about ontology since you explained uh, oh. studies to me. I'm like, Oh my God. Tell me everything. What is ontology? Yeah. Uh, this is such a jump, like right out the gate. Here we right go. Yeah. Um, ontology is from the world of philosophy. It's the study of existence or the study of being. And, um, you know, it, it is, I don't know. I, like I learned it in the context of academic research. So, it, to me, it's always paired alongside um, epistemology, which is the study of knowledge and um, axiology, which has to do with the world of values, what values we hold, and methodology, which is the way that we, um, the lens through which we gather knowledge. Um, and yeah, an ontology for me is like that bigger container that holds all of it. Um, so yeah that's that's it in a nutshell i mean very small nutshell people have written you know tons of books throughout time on this but yeah that's that's the basic 
I mean, let's, I want to unpack this. I want this to be okay. like, not just a nutshell. I want this to be the whole Costco bag of nuts. Okay. Um, and maybe perhaps before there was Costco, perhaps just a giant harvest of nuts. Um, okay. Tell me, okay, so ontology, I feel like answers like people's biggest basic questions, right? Like, why are we here? And like, what's the container? Um, yeah, but you I don't know. Well, okay. So, so, so get, get more into it and talk about your studies in ontology. Okay. So, right. So I am, and I'm a graduate student right now and I am studying community liberation, indigenous and eco psychology and ontology, like, you know, was presented to us as this concept and it just felt like the missing piece in the work that I do with clients and my healing practice and the, yeah, the client work, the community work I do, um, that we're, we're constantly, we live, you know, I'm in LA, we're in the United States. We live in what is called a fixed modernist ontology. We live in a colonial ontology. So what that means is that we live in a reality that is bound by rules, structures, um, you know, parameters that are derived from the world of modernism, from the age of modernism, from, you know, the age of modernism, which it comes from like the 14 to like the 1600s when in Western Europe, um, science was on the rise, um, you know, the studying space and astronomy was happening philosophy was blossoming again, art was, you know, blossoming again, and, you know, like the Renaissance and those periods, and, um, and it was also a time of really troubling thought coming from Western white men who felt this, you know, entitlement to, um, expand out into the world and take it over, and, and, and that, you know, which is where, where colonialism is, but there's a lot of like, um, you know, underpinnings in thought that came from modernism that, that sanctioned that kind of expansion. So like this idea of, you know, the Cartesian split, which is this notion that like our mind is separate from our body, like Descartes posited this idea. Everyone knows it. Cogito ergo sum, I think, therefore I am which is to say like, I know that I exist because I think it so, which is essentially to cut off all of the wisdom of the body and all of the things that the fa- the other faculties of knowing that we all possess, like intuition, like sensations in the body, somatics, like, you know, all these other ways of knowing it, he immediately privileged the mind. And so, you know, Western white men went out into the world and were like, those people don't know what I know. They don't think like I think they're not humans. Let's enslave them. Let's take their land. And so like the expansion of colonialism is there, there, you know, there's a a book that we love called on decoloniality by Walsh and Mignolo. And they basically say that like, there is no modernism outside of colonialism and there's no colonialism outside of modernism. They're one in the same. And then, you know, we think, today several hundred years later somehow that you know many people think that colonialism is over because you know 
countries all over the world have kicked their colonizers out and people use the term post-colonial and I my 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 focus in my studies isn't um, I'm not drawn toward the the world of like land sovereignty the um, which which is a totally important like area of of, of activism and, and study my my pull is toward the like coloniality which is the way that the the colonial you know tentacles have like reached inside of us and and created the world we live in and then the created like the bodies that we live in created the pathways that are possible for us and um one of the things that i'm like really <clears throat> interested in is like not even interested in but one of the things i feel like deeply in my heart is like we don't we can choose if we have awareness of of how we're being of how our reality is being manufactured then we can choose to manufacture a different reality but we can't do that if we don't have a conscious awareness of where we have choice and where we don't have choice um so ontology is asking us to look at what is the nature of existence what is the nature of being for me i'm really interested in like what part of that is unconscious like you know i was just talking to somebody about how like uh you know everyone is anti-capitalist now they claim to be anti-capitalist but they don't understand the ways in which abstract capitalism is controlling all these other areas of their lives so you can make your relationship to money as anti-capitalist as you want you can go i'm putting quotes around all these things like go live off the grid go grow your own food you can try to divest as much as you want from the money system but there are all of these other ways that our reality is um constructed around abstract capitalism like we teach kids early on to like you know accumulate good grades and accumulate friends and we want to accumulate memories and accumulate likes on Instagram or whatever you know like all of the everywhere that we see accumulation is coming from our tendency to hoard which comes from the ontology of extraction which is to say that we fundamentally think in the global north that like resources are finite we have to get them as much we have to take them and deplete them and keep them and hoard them so capitalism isn't going to just crumble because you go live on a commune and grow your own food like we have to divest from all of all of the ways that accumulation and hoarding and and extraction have kind of like spread into like non-money areas of our lives yeah wow okay yeah full agree there's so much of my life like i look back before i realized right dot 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 right like there's so many realizations um we're recording this on national coming out day which is just so fascinating to me because like coming out as queer isn't the end right like i feel like i've had to come yeah. out a million times like yeah constantly revealing who i really am and that's yeah. right as i grow and change yeah um Wow. And I, and I think about that too, because I live in this beautiful neighborhood that's like an intentional community, but the Amazon trucks are rolling by multiple times a day. Like these women are not yeah. from capitalism. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. then, yeah. I always think about, you know, like I lived in San Francisco for a long time and 
I lived there for the, I moved there for the first time in the year in 1999 and it was right around the time of the first dot-com boom, which is such a, that feels so old to say that. Um, but I remember going, I would go to parties and like go places and there immediately you can identify who the Burning Man people are. <laughs> you can and still do that. Yeah, <laughs> I know you can still do that, but it's like, it's different now. Burning Man, you know, like at the time I thought I was annoyed by Burning Man, but now that I know that you have to like buy tickets and it's like a whole, it's a whole festival vibes thing now. I like miss the way I was annoyed with it previously. And I remember like one of my main complaints, cause I always worked like in education and social services. And I always worked in like, you know, um, low income communities of color. That's like the communities that my family came from. And I would just be like, y'all can, you can think that you can escape these problems and go make your little dioramas in the, in the desert. But you can't like, it's, it's, it's just a recreation of a colonial desire to go out and make a new thing and take the land and, you know, like, which I have a lot of friends that are burners, so I don't want to like say anything, but like in the, in theory, this, this idea of like, if only there were this pure place where we could like start anew and create the civilization we want to have. And like, you know, we have control over it and there aren't going to be issues like poverty and there aren't going to be issues like, you know, um, whatever the issues are that like 1980s tech dudes had with society. But like, like if you say you're, if you want to see it, capitalism tumble, we have to like be in love with the people that we wish we could escape or the situations we wish we could escape so much so that we offer care and resolution to the things that are harming them. And that's not what I think a lot of people think anti-capitalism is. I think people get really into, um, sort of meme shortening things. It's like how, it's like how cancel culture works, right? Like yeah. somebody does something problematic, it gets shortened to its most reductive and most inflammatory statement of an is statement, right? This person is problematic or whatever. Yeah. It's their worst thing. And then that's the yeah. firestorm that goes and it's, it's impossible to stop. Yeah, totally. And it's funny you mentioned cancel culture because that's another abstract expression of carceral carcerality and so like we live in a carceral ontology in this in this the fixed modernist ontology is very carceral meaning that there are, there are structures of policing and control everywhere and it's like the same the very same people who claim to want to abolish the prison system and police systems are also the ones in, who I've observed engaged in very violent cancel culture and it's like those are tentacles of the same beast and to me, it's like, I'm not, I know it sounds like I'm judging what people should and shouldn't do. And I want to back up and say, like, I can't, I'm not, I can't do that. I can't judge what people should and shouldn't do. But it just seems like if you want to do this thing and get rid of this thing, but then you're performing it over here, 
like in our school we say that colonialism has many tentacles it's like just when you think this one is cut off it reaches around over here um and we and that's why like ontology is so fascinating to me because we don't even think i think we don't even understand i'm, I'm saying myself included i'll speak for myself i don't even understand the ways that i probably am performing the things that i think that i'm against um and so it, it's like a really interesting and like liberating puzzle to me to be studying ontology and like with healing work you know healing work is completely ontological to me yeah, yeah. oh i think that's so true um okay so my favorite thing to say about cancel culture and policing is like being anti-police means we don't police each other yeah um, and i really think that there is as i like kind of start to as i i'm actively disentangling colonialism in my mind right i think this uh -huh. is going to be a lifetime's work because of how indoctrinated we are by people and systems um yeah. it's not like you choose you like you're born and you're like colonialism right. yes of course no. <laughs> of course of you're course self-loving babies love themselves and we're taught yeah. to loathe ourselves because we're taught to be a carceral in our mind that there's uh -huh. right ways of thinking and right ways of thinking about ourselves yeah. Um, and I keep thinking about how the police, especially for white people, and that's the experience I can speak from, like, it's, it's a conflict avoidance. It's like, I call the police and then my work here is done mm. and the police handle it rather than like actually, you know, approaching with love and care situations that probably need love and care and don't need yeah. violence and control. Yeah. It's so hard though, because. So like what you're talking about to me is directly relate is a, it, like like just pawning off a problem on the police and not having to deal with it directly is exactly a a residue of the modernist notion of individuality that like I think therefore I am I'm an individual I'm the subject everything else is the object there's a distance between me and everything. I am separate from nature. Everything else is nature. If it is nature, I don't have to relate to it with empathy. I don't have to feel connection to it. I don't need to be in relationship to it. And so it's really easy. And this is like, you know, people, there's whole journals and there's whole institutes on othering and belonging. And so like, it really, you know, like this is a way that our, our ontology is, and this is like where my dissertation work is going. It's founded on this notion that we're individuals, which capitalism is founded on individuality. Like I can be the best. I can do this thing. I can get the most. I can, you know, win, I, whatever. Um, and it, 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 so like what you're talking about in my wonderings is like, can, what does it take for us to shift into a relational ontology where we truly, and, and think of the person that you hate the most in this world and you understand that you exist in terms of relationship to that person. So like, there is something not different between me and Donald Trump, but as much as I want to like make him other, make him like, worse make him you know I want to like know that I'm somehow better I'm like perpetuating the same like ontological like tenets that created him as the monster that he is 
it's so complicated, complex. And you had explained to me that indigenous ontology is uh, like I am in relationship to you, right? Like that patriarchal ontology organizes around a patriarch and then indigenous ontology organizes around relationships. Yeah, well, we would call that relational ontology. And um, a lot of, you know, I would say, I mean, I don't know, I'm not an expert on indigenous peoples or any indigenous um, ontology, but I would say that indigenous peoples, for the most part, live in relationship with each other and the planet, with the human and the more than human in in ways that that we have a really hard time understanding in the colonial world. Mm -hmm. And I think, I don't know, did we talk about Mauna Kea last time? No. So, you know, Mauna Kea is this um, land in Hawaii that was being contested by scientists who wanted to put a telescope there. And the indigenous Hawaiian people were like, this is an, a sacred site. You can't just put a science center up there like you can't it's 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 not available for that it's and the scientists and the you know i think it i don't know if it was nasa or if it was a private i don't know they're like no 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 we can do this they, uh, that doesn't make sense you know like basically there was an ontological like conflict going on between this is not actually just an empty piece of land this is a sacred site for us. And then the scientists being like, no, there's nothing there. We want to use it to do science. Um, and the same thing happened with like uh, the uh, Mount Rushmore, what we call Mount Rushmore, which I don't remember the indigenous name for it. I think it's like the seven grandmothers or something. Or, um, But like the, the Sioux were like, you know, the U.S. was like, we took it, we carved it, we want this land. And the Sioux were like, it's not for sale. It's not, you You desecrated this sacred space. And the U.S. were like, no, no, we'll buy it from you. It's fine. And like, you can't buy something sacred. You can't buy, like, it's, it's, it's incommensurable. It's like, it's not even available to be sold. But we, in the modernist colonial ontology, we don't understand that. We believe everything can be purchased including land we think land can be bought and so they put the u.s put like some money in an account um and we're like just get the money when you want and they were like no and it has accumulated so much interest that it's like 700 million dollars or something is now in this account something like something really nuts um and the sioux are still like and and they are uh their um, nation is fraught with like some of the most debilitating like social oppressions, including alcoholism and, um, you know, hit really hard with like COVID and like, like just all of these issues because of their disenfranchisement as Native Americans. And still they will not take that money. And it, it's like, these are ontological splits. These are, this is, they're, they're two different worlds that are coming up against each other that don't speak the same language. And so I look at like where that's happening just around us. Like, you know, um, we had the really remarkable Vandana Shiva is one of our professors in our program recently. And she wrote a book called Monocultures of the Mind, which I think everyone should read. It's really interesting. And I mean, it's, it just speaks to 
how our thinking has led us to the place where we are with like climate. And um, one of the things that she brings up in the very beginning is this concept of terra nullius, which means empty earth, essentially, or like void earth. And it's like terra nullius is like a presumption that colonial people like the global north makes that like when I go and she she talks about the difference between a forest and in in terra nullius a forest looks like to a to a colonial person a forest looks like oh there's nothing there there's just some trees it's fine but in her her ontology of earth democracy that she's put forward this like um charter that we are asked to consider to become like get back into relationship with the land it she's like no this is a living system like there are things that are being like you know things that are giving life things that are receiving life there are trees there are animals there are mycelium under the ground there's a root system there this is like a this is a system here it's not empty at all but colonials come and they're like, no, there's nothing there. Let's raise the land, cut all the trees down. We'll use the trees for lumber. Something did grow there. So now let's impose a monocultural um, crop. Like let's put corn. Well, corn doesn't grow in the forest, but something grew here. So we'll put corn, but we'll extract as much as we can, the nutrients from the land as, as much as we can. After that crop is done, we'll raise it again. We'll have to take all the nutrients out. So we'll have to put nutrients back in so we're going to flood it with all the like you know nitrogen and all the things that it needs and now like oh there are um, pests are coming well in the forest there would be like natural like predators of pests that would keep that population in check and now there aren't so now we need pesticides on top of the nutrients and and we like we extract more from the land than it's able to like re revitalize itself and that's how we've gotten to the place that we're at now so i don't know what terra nullius is like a concept that i look at all the time like when you, if you go to a park and you're like oh cool there's nobody here i'm by myself and it's like actually no you are in a living system you're not alone but we don't we don't acknowledge the invisible worlds in the colonial modernist ontology we don't and we I, it's so interesting how we perceive things and what you were saying about the Sioux and the U.S. government not even speaking the same language really like yeah there's um in have you read the book Braiding Sweetgrass yes yeah like, it's so good and when she's talking yeah. about um her language uh towards the beginning and how they have yeah. a they don't have distinctions between genders right so right. genders yeah. um they have distinctions between living and non-living and it's really the distinction between like living and man-made because everything yeah. has a spirit and yeah. that you can make yeah that book is amazing robin wall kimmer is so amazing and brilliant there's a chapter in that book where she talks about the three sisters i think it's corn beans and squash and how they grow um like in relationship with each other like that's why they are able to thrive together and that's exactly like what monoculture of the mind doesn't understand and therefore 
will totally destroy one of those like crops because or one of those like um, plants because it doesn't understand that. But yeah, the, the, the so like if we look at what you're talking about, like kind of in a there's no neutral, but like kind of neutrally and we're like, oh, wow, the way that this this group of people, this ontology identifies identity is very different from how we do it how could we do it in a way that isn't gonna hurt us like it really hurts us to impose any binaries especially you know we clearly can see that around gender but like any binaries anywhere where like you have a fixed choice to make between this or that and there's no gray area that's really hurts to to be boxed in like that so i love the idea of like getting to have awareness of where our ontology could be different. What, what can we do? But like, I would say that like the idea of binaries wasn't really like when I was a kid in the eighties, we didn't talk about that. That wasn't on anyone's radar that like there's, yeah, there's no outside of the binary. It's that's not the, we took it as a given and so just, you know, like the way gender is breaking now is like such a beautiful process in like people really claiming like their empowerment of like, I won't be pushed into these two things because for one, I don't fit. And for two, it's painful and it's harmful to, to, to force myself into that. And I think if everyone were given the chance, every single person the most cishet person in the world would say, I truly don't check all the boxes of cisgenderness or heteroness. Like, yeah, everyone's in the gray area. Yeah. The more time I spend in mostly straight communities, the more I realize everyone's a little bit gay. Like there's, yeah. Especially when you're like the out loud gay person in the, in the room or queer person, which is how I, yeah. but like, then people will come to you and like secretly be like, well, I'm married to a man, but right. Like it's. Yeah. I, and, and I think like, like when we, when we notice that, then we're like, oh, actually straightness is the anomaly. Like straightness is the pathology, like this rigidity, which is not to say that, you know, a person can live their life only in hetero relationships, but it's like, I was just talking to my friend about this, how like straightness isn't, has very little to do actually with our actual personal choices because it's the container. It's the culture. Like you, you could be such a normative gay person and basically live a very straight life yeah. because the container is set up for you to do that. Um, so it, yeah, thinking about those kinds of identities in terms of bigger systems instead of just like our personal choice. And we want to think of identity as our personal choice because we are those individuals, those cogito ergo sum people that think we're choosing or, or not choosing, but like this is who I am and this is how I live it. But really like we're we're pushed into boxes. Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk about normal and why that's a problematic term. I learned that from you. Okay. And it is it echoes through my mind till today. Yeah. Did you go to when I did um decolonize your intuition? Did you see that? I think it must have it must have been that. It was like twenty I remember very distinctly. I think it was in my kitchen. It might have been a podcast. I was listening to uh, it. 
And I was like in my kitchen. It's one of those things where you like hear it and it changes your whole Oh, that's cool. Yeah, I, um, so I, when I started this work before I was in like in graduate school or anything, I was a classroom teacher and I had, um, you know, I was the, the only female identified femme person on the staff and I had a, um, I worked with 18 and 24 year olds. Our school was in Watts. And then it moved to Compton and um, I had a great student body. It was very small, like 150 students and 30% were female identified or femme or queer. And we would do like gender groups. And so I basically took everyone that wasn't a cishet male person into, and, and in you know, the, for as problematic as it was, it was also so needed because there was nothing like it for, for our school or for these students. Um, uh, and so we started talking about like our experiences with like sexual assault and, you know, rape. And I discovered that a hundred percent of my students had been molested or raped over the course of their lives. And, we started looking at like, how does this happen? Like systemically, like what's going on? And it felt very, very powerless, like as a teacher to know that these things are happening. And there's basically, there's just nothing that I personally can do about it. I, I can work with them. I can be loving toward them. I can help them succeed in school. But like my role really was, it ended there. And so our school ended up closing and I went on, I started thinking about like, what would I do if I could go back and teach anything to my students? And I started thinking, and I was having kind of like my spiritual awakening and stuff at that time. And I was like, I would want to like bolster their intuition. Like maybe I can't help, maybe we can't, stop the system of really violent masculinity happening. But there were definitely so many times when my students described situations where they ignored their own intuition in order to be in a situation that they thought would bring them love, but ended up bringing them violence, like sexual violence. And so we, like, I started thinking about like, who, who teaches us this? And, realizing that it really comes down to our investment in our social structures, which are colonial structures and how we're taught from such an early age, even the way we're taught to define gender is around a narrative of like fitting in and normalcy. It's a, it's a, it's, it's around this, you know, colonial, the colonial tentacles that reach in and teach us like how we need to be, who we need to be. And and we call that like, you know, the American dream, or we call that like, um, you know, Amer just like, and I would run through this activity where I would ask people to think of like the traditional American family, like maybe not your traditional American family, but like the mainstream narrative of what that family is. And we can go down all of the social identity markers and everyone is gonna name the same thing. So like, what race are they? They're white. What, um, what are their genders? They're cis, they're married, they're monogamous, they're, 
heterosexual they do they have children yes they have children do they have mental health issues they don't but if they do they're going to be acceptable ones like depression and anxiety they're not going to be the more severe things you know like schizophrenia um or do they have education yes they went to college do they rent or do they own they own you know like all we can go down the list of all the things and 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 this like narrative of what is normal is created and nobody checks all the boxes like like nobody does like nobody but but we all are in some way striving to feel that even in the ways that we shun it even in the ways that we're like no forget that there are still places that we want to belong and the way that we're told to do that is by not being an outlier by being a part of the norm in some way or another. You know, like I grew up in a DIY punk community and when I look back, I was like, yeah, we were really, really doing stuff that like my dad thought was vulgar, but we were also very normalized into like this other aesthetic. Then all of us dressed the same. We all listened to the same music. We all had the same opinions. And so there was maybe the, the needle on normal was, you know, they slid it over, but it's still an attempt to fit into this normal and be a part of this narrative. Um, so yeah, normal is a very violent concept that really, um, it governs our behaviors. It makes us police each other. Um, and ultimately someone is making money off of our, insecurity around not being normal and so if we look at like beauty standards west like i always talk about like the shaving industry and how like billions of dollars are made off of the narrative that the body hair that grows naturally out of your body should be shaved away if you're a woman a femme a fat person a, a dark-skinned person indigenous person if you're queer, if you, if you have any other identity or mark of difference that makes you vulnerable and you have body hair, you are ever more outside of the normal container. And you're, depending on who you are, you're at risk for violence or losing your life, you know, depending on how far outside of normal you are. So for some people, it's like, and, and, and I think like this is like where, like the diversions between like body positivity movement and fat liberation movement happens too. like, you know, first everyone feels terrible and they're not everyone, but like, you know, the narrative is that your body will never be good enough if it is fat or pro in proximity to fatness so much so that we will change the narrative. You, like you can look in the mirror and you will have such a distorted view of what your body actually looks like because you're aligned with the narrative instead of what is literally in front of you. And um, depending on how far outside of a thin body you are, you're not just experiencing maybe, you know, a really hard experience with self-love, but you're also experiencing like systemic violence and like, you know, not getting health care and being turned down for jobs, you know, like just all kinds of stuff. Um, yeah. It's, I love, I thank you for sharing all of that. Like, I think there is, 
this idea that we want to normalize things. And I really like to change that language to destigmatize because yeah. really what we're fighting is stigma. We don't, yeah. I don't want to be normal. Fuck normal. Right. Normal is yeah. like, I would rather yeah. be chasing my dreams and like, and doing what I need to do to survive uh, in a really violent world. Like I like, people like to say normalize going to therapy, like going to the gym destigmatize going to therapy congratulate yeah. going to yeah. therapy. it's such a brave choice yeah also make going to the gym a safe experience also that too <laughs> yeah yeah no i i definitely hear that and i i understand that we enjoy and feel we feel like belonging when we have agreement on shared experiences but when that's paired with our tendency in our, you know, the ontology of policing that we live in, this carceral ontology, you know, like, I, I just like, I don't know if you ever like go back and watch the old Twilight Zone episodes, but I, we love the Twilight Zone in my house. And there are episodes that are like, so, I mean, the show is like, it from the sixties, but like they're so astute about society even today. Like, um, there's one that's coming to mind about, um, this uh, alleged extraterrestrial landed in this community, but he looks like a person. And so this neighborhood of people are trying to figure out who it is so they can get rid of them. And they're all turning on each other like, it's you, it's been you the whole time. No, it's him. And so like the mob mentality like kicks in and um, we see that all the, I mean, that's how we live. I remember like when COVID first happened in LA, um, Mayor Garcetti, it wasn't first, it was like maybe a couple months in, Mayor Garcetti put like ads out or commercials on the radio like, if you see people running their business during this time when they should be shut down, here's the number to call. And it was like, bro, there are people who are like, you know, like I within the first like seven or eight months of COVID, like eight million people slid from middle class into poverty. Mm -hmm. Like people, so like the tactic for dealing with people who are losing their stability, losing their safety is to now snitch and like police. And that's so where we go. That's like, it, we jump there so quickly. Yeah. It's interesting. Cause um, my mom and I had a, a, my mom and I are very different uh, in so many ways. And um, she taught me a lot about like diversity and inclusion. I'm really grateful. That was part of my values growing up. But it's interesting because there was, um, I was awoken or not awoken. I was awake, but it was like 9am. I was like in my chill and some man starts hollering at my house and I live in an RV. Like this, is, these are not walls. Right. So I'm hearing a man yelling at me yeah. um, and I go out and it's a cop. And like, he was like, right. Like I'm like my little peaceful rural uh, place yeah. in, nowhere, um, in a gated community, you know, like we have yeah. a gate, right. So some cop is in here yelling at me. Um, and so I go outside and then, um, he's like, is this, is this lot five? And I said, no. And I pointed, and then I regretted it immediately. Cause I'm like, I don't help cops. Right. 
Yeah. And, um, and it's funny because my mom was like, why, why wouldn't you? And I said, because cops murder people. They murder black people specifically. And I don't want to be in a chain of events that arrives at them. There's one black woman who lives here sometimes, right? Like, (laughs) I don't want to murder her. And so like, it it was one of those moments where like, she was like, that's prejudice. Not all cops murder people. And I'm like, yeah, but some do. And just like, not everyone's going to give me COVID. I'm still going to wear a mask and I'm still not going to allow my lungs to be part of COVID. So like, it's like, it's like, and and the cops have so many ways to compel me to help them if they really need my help. I don't need that. Yeah. And so anyway, it's just thinking about these ways, like we can take ourselves out of the policing of everyone. Yeah. Mind our business and support people. It's, it's so hard though, because the cops are so scary to everybody, even to white people who may never have had a negative experience with police. Just the, you know, like I, there's this book that I'm reading, um, called Necropolitics by Ashil Mbembe. And, um, he talks about necropolitics as like the, the strategy of using death as a constant threat to control the population and how that is like, you know, so many of us are not going to ever have engagement with the system or be arrested or be imprisoned, much less, you know, be on death row. And yet all of that is like a, a fear that, just sits on the shoulder, our shoulder, like we're never free. And so we're constantly pushing ourselves into this, you know, death driven model of what normal is in order to avoid the potential of the, that calamity of having to be involved. And then there are people who with, you know, uh, I don't need to go into like the discrepancy and who is policed and who is not, but yeah, it's it's a lot. Um, yeah. that's, that's a really reductive way of saying that. It's a lot. Um, I want to talk to you about the Akashic Records because clearly yeah. you're an expert um, and not everyone knows what they are. What are they and how do you heal with them? How did you get involved with the Akashic yeah. Records? Well, let's first not call me an expert because I'm not that. <laughs> but I have been doing it for you like six years. I, I've been doing this practice for six years, so I am practiced at it. Um, but no one can be an expert at it because it is a dimension of consciousness outside of, on the level of the soul. So like, I don't believe there is one human that can be an expert. Um, that being said, the Akashic records are the, the vibrational, man, just when I talk about them, I start to yawn because it, I don't know what it is, but, um, I can feel it already. Um, I yawn so much when I'm doing, when I'm actually in the records. Um, But the vibrational archive of the soul from its journey. So our each, everything that has consciousness has a soul and every soul has an archive. Well, okay. I am, I'm changing my opinion on what they are, but traditionally what you would say is that every soul has like a record, an imprint of a record of all of its iterations, all the lifetimes it has experienced, all the wisdom that it possesses exists in this dimension of consciousness. And as a practitioner, we can open our records and we can go in and we, for me, um, 
we can look at a lot of weird stuff like past lives, other lifetimes. They're not really past like other lifetimes. We can ask weird esoteric things, spiritual things. But for me, it doesn't really matter if we can do all that stuff if we can't make um, gains and transformation in 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 the life we're living today. So for me, the, the, the readings I do with people are really designed to go in and see like, where does this block that you're having come from? What do you need to know about yourself, about this experience to move through this? How can you transform your perspective on this so that it's not trapping you or imprisoning you? Um, that's really like what I do in the records. Yeah. Um, do you believe that we're quantum souls? Meaning that like, it's not just like, there's only ever been one Bevan for all these lifetimes. It's like an amalgamation of souls with different lifetimes of info that come together and revealed to the world when they wait wait say that again how what do you mean so okay so the concept of quantum souls i learned from shaman durek and basically the the idea as i understand it is that like when when you're like prepping for like so say bevan is coming to the earth 12 24 78 right like they're planning for it they know what the stars are going to look like um and a bunch of so you've got your like main soul and then you get other souls that kind of add on to it because you've got this lifetime of journey and all of these lessons to learn and they all kind of come together which is how i understand us to be like these unique beings that have never been before right because we're quantum is that like because you go on the record so i'm just curious if like yeah um everybody just be throwing around the word quantum now (laughs) (laughs) um no shade, Shaman Derek. Um, I think what you're talking... So when you say all these other souls that are, like, enmeshed, you're talking about, like, the people that become your family, your friends, like... No, I mean, like, you individually. So, like, instead of it just being, like, one soul through every lifetime, it's, like, multiple souls come in with each lifetime. So, like, I can be soulmates with somebody who is not soulmates with someone else I'm also soulmates with, Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, why not? Why shouldn't that be possible? I mean, I don't think, um, mm, that's a good example of like explicitness that we try to like achieve that doesn't actually serve a purpose. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? Like, like people, people come and they're like, tell me what my past lives are and I'll, I'll get like a thing, but I'm like, who cares what it is if it's not going to help you? Um, what I know from the records is that there is no linear time outside of the earth plane. As we get nearer and nearer to the earth plane, time becomes linear in a way that we perceive it as linear because of the way that like the earth moves and the sun appears to have like a path and like our days are framed around the path of the sun. The path of the sun creates the year We have like, you know, you can mark the trajectory of the sun into a figure eight shape called the analemma, which shows, oh yeah, the the sun over the course of the year where the axis of the earth is like tilting back and forth, we can see the sun starts high in the sky, high in the sky, high in the sky, low, 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 comes back around, high, 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 low, 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 and that's what it does throughout time and so we perceive because as cogito ergo sum beings i think therefore i am i think that that's a line i think time is linear i think so 
linear time is colonial time. Other ontologies perceive cyclical ways of understanding time. That time is actually relationship to us. Time is the passage of things coming and going in and out of our lives. Death and birth, stories coming in, stories coming out, being visited by beings again at different times. Like, we're in relationship. Time is a relationship. So what you're describing the quantum the quantum souls to me i'm hearing that come from a colonial modernist ontology so it depends on like where what ontology what world do you live in um the records describe the soul as like a string cheese <laughs> or like a fiber optic cable that like there are multiple strands happening at the same time that are bound up with each other but the experience that one has in one moment is like feels finite to the lifetime that you're having so when people come and they ask about past lives and we're like okay let first let's throw out past let's first call that concurrent your soulmate is you it's a lifetime of you. Like, if you want to believe in soulmates, you don't even have to believe in that. But like, let's say you believe in like a mate of your soul, someone that is derived from that same fiber optic cable. That is you. Like, you are. So like, what I understand in when using the word quantum about that is that like, a quantum particle has the ability to exist in multiple places at once because distance is actually the illusion Every, it's actually everything happening in one single place, but the quantum reality allows us to perceive it happening in multiple places at once. So the perception of you being Bevan, but your soulmate being in a separate body comes back to that ontology of separateness, of individuality, that I'm separate from you, that we're in different bodies, therefore we must be individuals. So I can see like how you we might describe it that way but it's just a description coming from an ontology like it, it, it's all the same thing being like spoken of in different ways and perceived in different ways i think totally i mean thank you for that that actually helped me you know i love that i love that like it's rooting out more of that colonialist and that's like where we can't it, it ontology is like so it's literally the air that we breathe so it's like hard to identify that we breathing air. you know like if you ask somebody like what does it feel like to be living in gravity you'd be like i don't even freaking know because i've never been outside of gravity like yeah we've been in the water and we can feel like buoyancy and stuff but like we don't know so like how can we even describe it but like that's why like putting our attention and our like, like, yeah, our attention at where are the ontological cuts, then we can start to see like, oh, I don't have to actually believe that or, yeah. Yeah, I know. I love that. And here's something that has really freed me up, but has challenged me at the same time is this idea that I don't need to understand everything. Like yeah. if we release the need to understand everything, especially in times like this where everything is all fluxed up. Like yeah. it's, 
the releasing the need to understand things, there's a lot of peace in that. Cause I don't need yeah. to figure everything out in order to have a pleasant day Totally. Um, in order to like resurrect things from like, you know, cause things are hard for yeah. me in specific ways that I get to grow through. Right. But yeah. I can release the need to have to understand everything. Totally. But I'm also like a hungry, hungry hippo who loves to learn. And so I love yeah. to figuring stuff out and I love to yeah. like, you know, do that kind of stuff. Um, yeah. Okay, so the Akashic Records, if someone wants an Akashic Record, like, reading or healing, like, um, what is offered in that sort of a yeah. reading? Yeah, so um, you book me for a reading, and then I open your records with a prayer, and then I ask people to come with questions. It's unlike, you know, tarot or oracle card readings where you can, like, let the cards tell the story. People will be like... I don't know. What do they have to say to me? And it's just like crickets, man. Like not like you have like, um, you know, the person that I originally learned the records from Linda Howe, she says energy moves on the formed word. And so like the flood of, you know, ener the energetic imprint of information comes flooding through as you describe your situation, which in very purest colonial, like, you know, ontologies, people claim that that's fishing or like, you know, they want some purity in the psychic they're going to. I'm not psychic, by the way, but um, like, yeah, but but so like if I hear someone describe their story, I can it like unlocks. I don't know. For me, it just like unlocks an ability to see exactly how they feel about a situation and be able to give them. Truly what it is, is like, I can see like an x-ray machine, like what their unmet needs are. And then we can describe how to meet those needs with the guidance of the records. And then that's like how we move through things. It really comes down to unmet needs. I love that. Yeah. How did you get into reading the Akashic Records and becoming a healer? Yeah, I, well, I was not this ever. I was a teacher. I was like a very practical person. I don't know. Very, yeah. And um, when my school closed in 2015, I just started dabbling in like fun classes that I thought, I'll just do this until I get another job. And some of them were spiritual classes. I took like metal smithing, like just like little things like that. And my friend at the time was like, I had this reading from this woman. Her name is Helen Vonderheide. She's teaching a class on how to do what she does and you need to take it. And I was like, well, I don't have money for that. And she's like, I'll pay. And I was like, all right, let's do this. And I went to her house for this class. I went to Helen's house. And as soon as she opened the door, I was like, I know this person. As soon as we opened the record. I was like, oh, this is very familiar. I've done this before. It did not feel like learning. It felt like remembering. Mm -hmm. And from day one, I remember like the, the first class we took, and I had never had a reading before even. The first class we took, we it was January of 2016, which was a very important year in our history. And at that time, I don't even think we had formal candidates for the election yet. Mm -hmm. And 
our homework was to go home and just open the records and just see what happens. And then we come back the next day and we're going to share. And I, we come back the next day and everyone's going around and it's all these like white yoga ladies, West LA ladies, like, you know, like, Oh, they said I need to love myself and forgive myself and forgive my mother. And it gets to my turn and they're like, they said that Trump's winning the election and it's going to be the last election we have in the United States. And everyone was like, why would you say that? Why would you bring that violence in here? Like people just were like, and I was like, I don't know. Like, that's just what I got. I don't know. I, I don't know what it's supposed to be like. And from that moment on, I was just like, this is, I mean, the feeling in January of 16 about Trump was like, that feels like a full body. Yes. I feel with a kind of certainty that I don't think I've really known before this will happen. Like I, I predict that this will happen and I feel like it will happen. And, um, they continued to kind of navigate and guide me through the political journey of that year. And even like they, I remember opening the records about the Kavanaugh hearing and like, will he be confirmed? And they were like, yes. Uh, like, um, before Bernie Sanders dropped out from the 2020 election, like they gave me a whole thing on like why he would be dropping out, like why he's not going to make it before he even announced it. So I'm not saying that like, you know, like we always want to hear like, Oh, political, like, Psychic accuracy is a way to vet whether someone's good or not. And I don't believe in that anymore at all. If you're worried about psychic facts, then you're having actually your problem is probably anxiety about the future, not actually what's going to happen to you. Um, but for me as a skeptic, that was a way to for me to affirm that I can trust this process and then I just really like sank into it and became very, very obedient to the records. And I would say in the last six years, I've, I, I opened my records almost daily. They've guided me through my career change. They've guided me through, I mean, they, they've guided me through business decisions, through personal decisions and I have only ever benefited from listening to their guidance because they are the, the, it's a dimension, it is truly a dimension of unconditional love. And so, you know, I've had people come to me that have been like, oh, I had a Akashic reading and it was really judgmental and scary. And I was like, that wasn't Akashic. That was so-and-so's judgment or ego or something that, because you come away feeling so hopeful and so cherished when you engage with the records. It's, it's, I've never experienced anything else like it. And they can help you deal with some hard stuff. Like they will confront you with like some trauma and some stuff that you need to change, but it's done in a way that I've never experienced. And I come from like a super blunt, tell it like it is dad. Like I know what it feels like to just have your stuff laid out for you. And it it is such a tender experience. Oh, I love that. Um, do you meditate every day? No, not every day. Not every no. day. But you check in with the records every day. I would say mostly, yeah. 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 What are like some key self-care practices that you do every day? That's tough. Um, 
Well, I'm going to say that I don't really believe in self-care. <laughs> Yes. Self-care, I know. Self-care is a response to state violence. You know, like caring for the self has become a way to resist the things that tell us we don't deserve or shouldn't be. You know, like when I was a teacher, I was literally trained as a teacher to be very frugal with your bathroom breaks. So basically I had, I had teacher trainers, like professors who would commiserate on the UTIs that they got from not going to the bathroom when they needed to. To me, that is a, that kind of systemic toxicity Which makes, oh, going to the bathroom, self-care. Like, that's bullshit. That is utter, disgusting bullshit to me. Um, I think that self-advocacy for me is a is a way to do self-care. But, I mean, like, for me, it really is, this is going to sound like I'm such a brat, but I don't care. Because I now work for myself and I didn't choose this path. I was pushed onto it. I want, I was going to be a teacher until I died or until it killed me, whatever. And I was pushed onto this path. I could not in, in two years, I had three interviews and I've never not worked since I was 17. So this was, it was very hard for me to let go and do what I do now. But I finally just surrendered to this and Being able to do what I want to do every single day, even if it defies logic, because I'm listening to what is resonant in my body, becoming that advocate for like what my soul is compelling me to do is for me the most caring way for me to live. So small acts of self-care I've completely let go of. I don't, I don't believe in it. I don't do it. I do what I want to do, obviously within means. So if I'm like, you know, I don't like punch an old lady so I can cut in front of her at the grocery store. Like I'm not like doing like careless, reckless, violent behavior, but like I, I, yeah, like if I, someone in, someone invited me to collaborate with them. Like I would love to do a workshop with you or do, you know, whatever. And it didn't feel right to me. It felt like they were kind of like trying to punch up a little, like trying to like jump like a stepping stone up in their career a little bit. And I gently and lovingly was like, Oh, I don't think that's right for me because it didn't feel right for me. And I think before I would have ignored that voice. I would wanted to listen to the normal voice. Like you say, yes, you don't be rude. And I wasn't rude, but I was like asserting what was in alignment for me. And that feels caring after having like reformed myself from like being a yes person and a people pleaser and a caretaker for the majority of my life. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah, absolutely. I love that you have a different perspective on self-care, but still <laughs> listen to yourself and take care of your own needs. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, do you, okay. So in, uh, will you tell me the backstory of how you came up with your Instagram name? Yeah. Um, yeah. I, so I started as making, I started with like, I was going to make jewelry. I'm going to make like crystal jewelry. It's like 2015. And I was learning how to metal Smith and, 
Um, and I was like, I guess I'll just call it like Leo Garza Designs. I don't know. And I tried that and it was like, ugh. And then I, I remember like my records telling me like, you need something that is that whole story. Like, as much as I rejected it, it was like, you need that freaking kombucha, Silver Lake, Chella vibes, like, marketing strategy, because that is what will bring people to you. Nobody wants to cut through the boringness of Leah Garza designs to find out who's actually in there. And... I was listening to the Steely Dan song, Cave, Caves of Altamira, and I was like, oh, I'm just going to borrow this title from Steely Dan, and that's it. There's no mystical meaning. There's no nothing. It's just a total ripoff. So it's Crystals of Altamira. Right? Yeah, Altamira. Yeah. Altamira. Um, I always pronounce it wrong in my head, but that's uh, okay. Crystals of Altamira. Okay, what are the other ways that people can find you in the world? Yeah, Um yeah, Instagram is probably the best. You can go... I work with a shop in LA. That's where I do all of my services and, and readings. So that's mostly angelsla.com. That's how you can book me. And I also have a website, um, crystalsofaltamira.com, but I do not tend to her very often. It's so hard for me. Um Instagram is probably the best. Yeah. It's, it's hard. It's hard to tend to a whole website. It's like there are patches of my website gardens and I have multiple websites that are like there. They need to be weeded. They're out of date. Yeah. Right? But whatever. It's still there. Yeah. Um, and also yeah. people can find you. Yeah. Highly recommend Leah's Instagram, especially IG lives and IG TV, like your long form content where you're just kind of explaining the world as, because you are just so connected, Leah. Like I just. Thanks. From, from the moment I like was even in community with you, connecting with you, I was like, oh yeah. And like, um, anyway, I just treasure you so much. I always learn so much Thank from you, you whenever I get the chance to connect. And I'm so grateful for you being on this podcast and talking Thank about you. all this. And this was such a treat and I appreciate you so much too. I'm actually doing an IG live tonight on ontology. Great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, no, it's been a treat, and I thank you so much. And now we're probably going on, like, I met you, like, five years ago. Easily. Yeah, I was in L.A. right around when you were having your spiritual awakening, beginning of 2015. Yeah. Yeah. I met you at that one staff training. I think that was in 2017? No, it was end of 2016, because they opened at the beginning of 2017. That one big staff training, like months before we actually opened yeah so that, that was 20 that was a long time ago yeah that's yeah. interesting uh, I love that <laughs> yay well thank you so much Leah I'm excited uh to have you on again sometime and yeah. talk more about I mean I learned again I learned so much from you I'm so grateful oh well thank you so much I appreciate you Bevan yay